You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everyone. I'm Jackie Lewis, and I am the host of Love Period, a podcast produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. This is our fourth season, and in this one, we're thinking about how to reframe and reclaim Christian as a religion of love, as the religion of Rabbi Jesus. What about if we took it back to Jesus and took it back to love? What if we take it back to scripture that elucidates this beautiful movement of love and justice? Join us this season for beautiful conversations with folks across the spectrum to talk about what's love got to do with scripture and what scripture got to do with love. My guest today on Love Period is the Reverend Ben Perry. Ben is Minister for Church Growth and Media Strategy at Middle Church and also the author of Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. And because we're exploring scripture and how it undergirds our faith in this season, we'll be talking with Ben about how scripture inspired his book and what tears have to do with our faith. How are you, Ben? I'm good. How are you doing, Jackie? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so glad we get to talk today. How tired are we from the end of the program year as we record this? How's how's our bodies doing with the Juneteenth slash Pride slash World on Fireness? How are you doing? Yeah, weary is I, I think a word that immediately comes to mind. Uh, it's the relentlessness of all of it again and again and again. And I was reflecting this morning as I was praying and and singing some hymns that I think particularly in these weary times, it's actually when I appreciate and am most grateful for my faith. That, you know, when when things are better and lighter, uh, I still rejoice and, and take solace in my relationship with God. But it's actually those moments when I feel like I just can't wake up and do it all over again that that ability to to pray and root myself in, in a tradition that is much older and deeper than me uh, becomes absolutely crucial. I totally get that and and would agree. And I don't know about you, Ben, but in times like these, where it feels like, I would say, as an African-American human in this nation, I'm pummeled, pummeled every day. I was talking with John about that this morning. Just every day. How many different aggressions? Micro, macro, medium? (laughs) How many will there be today? How many paper cuts? How many pinches? You know, pick one. How many splinters? And as we're speaking, we just found out that the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action. So I find myself almost feeling like praying, connecting to God is my in and out breath. I just, I just have to almost make a sacrament of this inhale, God. Right? This exhale, God. This inhale, spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. This exhale, you know, Breathe on me, breath of God, because I don't know that I could breathe at all if I didn't do that. It's interesting you're talking about breathing as a as a liturgical rite, because 
that's very much as I was writing my my book on crying, how I started to think about my tears. These ways that we're able to root in our bodies into a embodied spirituality. Something that's dynamic and in process, just like God is in process. I used to think of tears as a destination, but more and more when I reflect on my own crying and the, the tears I see in others, it's this movement, the physical moving through of the, the shit that gets stuck in our bodies. There's a liturgical aspect to that, that something that we can return to again and again to help us move through all the shit that gets lodged. You know, you just said shit gets lodged and someone's going to be deeply offended when I say this, but (laughs) 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 yet it's love period and we do things, we say things. You know, I was so, it's been a really tough few days, just moving, Ben, um, packing, moving. My dad is really sick. But something got loose yesterday, today, and I think it was because I stopped and let myself cry, that other things that were stuck in my body moved out. (laughs) And it makes me think about the power of the tears that you describe in your book. Um, And I love us both, the breathe in and out, the tears flowing, the ultimate unleashing of waste that needs to come out of our body. All of that is about our relationship with the holy, right? Yeah. So, Ben, tell us why you wrote this book, Cry Baby. So I wrote the book in the middle of COVID. And then, the, I mean, COVID is still ongoing, but in the middle of the early years of COVID. And I started writing about crying early on. I was watching, I was living in Washington Heights, and I was watching them park morgue trucks outside my window because there wasn't enough room in the hospital for all the people who had died around me. And yet that overwhelming, harrowing grief was not reflected in the news reports that I was seeing, was not reflected in the relentless drive towards normalcy of, you know, it's time to go back to work. It's, you know, show up on Monday and (laughs) do your job. Uh, And I'm very fortunate to get to work for a place like Middle where we actually talk about things. But I was talking to, you know, other friends who would talk about showing up to their, you know, job and people acting like nothing had happened. And I was reflecting on a time in my life when I was so dead to what I was feeling that I didn't cry for a decade and how when I began seminary I taught myself how to cry again I taught myself how to feel again and I, I wrote an essay uh, for the Washington Post that used that experience I had of moving through that process of learning how to cry learning how to feel again as a microcosm for what I thought culturally we needed to do we all collectively needed to learn how to name the grief that was surrounding us, that was enveloping us. 
in a way that we clearly, clearly were not. And uh, an editor reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in writing a whole book about crying? And I was like, well, I had never, <laughs> I'd never thought of doing that. Uh, but the more and more I thought about crying, the more I realized how neatly it mapped onto both my own personal story. You know, that the, the time in my life when I was, when I lost my tears was the time that I was most lost. But also how it mapped onto all of these things that I, I'm so passionate about discussing, that tears became this way to refract conversations about race and gender and class and whiteness and uh, spiritual violence and restoration and renewal and hope. All of that is so wrapped up in our, in our crying, you know, in the social ethics around who is given permission to cry around, uh, you know, what collective grief has meant to movements like ACT UP or Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, it just became this, this vehicle for really focusing in an intentional way on all of these emotions that I don't think are treated seriously enough. I don't think our emotional lives have been given, have been deemed worthy of serious intellectual inquiry. And I think that that's wrong. So I wanted to write a book that tried to, to take crying seriously. I was talking to one of our colleagues yesterday about Sunday worship, which I thought was really, really beautiful. Um, as Ben and I are speaking, it's, uh, we're a few days from Pride Sunday in New York. Had some hiccups <laughs> around floats and things, but our worship was really, really, really powerful. And Ben, I was describing to John how much his somewhere, his arrangement of somewhere, was so powerful for me. And just as I said it, my body remembered how it felt to stand in the sanctuary at Easton Temple and to watch those 30 or so diverse faces in all their beauty sing. And I cried. I didn't mean to. But it was like a, a joy uh, that, that bubbled up. So I, I just caught myself, and then I was like, oh, don't stop it. Let it go. Let this... Uh, the kind of beauty, the memory, the, the joy of that day. So our tears have, you know, information about what's happening in us and in the world, joy being one, but also lament, right? So I'm um, thinking about this uh, place in Crybaby where you say, you refer to talking about the temple's destruction in, in Lamentations. Mm-hmm. And you say, uh, to help us explore the unimaginable grief that Israelites experienced in exile, our professor broke us into groups and asked us to share with one another the last time we wept. When my turn came, I was speechless. I racked my brain, but I truly couldn't think of the last time. Tears had even graced my face, let alone when I sobbed in earnest. Maybe thinking a bit about that book, about Lamentations, what about the role of scripture, lamentations, other texts, kind of inspire you in this writing? The role of scripture in your own faith life, Ben, but also in the writing of the book. Can you talk a bit about that? One of the reasons why I included as much 
biblical content in the book as I did, other than I'm a minister and it's something I know how to talk and write is that, about. <laughs> is, that your, is that part of your work it as is, a minister? It is. It's part of my work. Um, <laughs> yes. But it, it was also because in the Bible, you have this beautiful picture of a very different relationship to crying and weeping than I think our present culture, broadly speaking, occupies right now. If you look at the internal logic, the storytelling, the way that tears show up in biblical texts, it is very clear that the ancient audience who was reading them and writing them did not consider weeping to be a sign of weakness, did not think that vulnerability or crying was uh, somehow a violation of you know who we're called to be as humans. You know, very frequently they'll you know one of the the tropes that is repeated over and over again in texts like Lamentations and other you know the post-exilic text, or in moments after somebody has died, is they will talk about like weeping and rending of garments, literally tearing the clothes off. That is a demonstration of grief that is, one, wildly more demonstrative than most of what we see in our present culture. But also that demonstrativeness is lifted up as evidence of love. Like that's what you do when you love something so deeply and then you lose it. You tear at your clothing in a representation of the way that you, you yourself has, have been torn. Um, and I think about texts like Mary Magdalene weeping outside of Jesus's tomb, that story doesn't make sense unless you interpret that weeping as a sign of her faith and love for Jesus. The reason that Jesus appears to her, makes her the first person to proclaim the resurrection, is because in this moment when all of the other disciples flee and run away, she sits there in that hard place. And she cries. It's a, you know, a mirror of Jesus's own weeping uh, when he, you know, arrives by the deathbed of Lazarus. That willingness to sit in the hard place and not to run away from the pain, but to name it and to to weep is very, very clearly in the writing lifted up as an example of what it means to live a life of integrity and faith. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash 
That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. When we were little kids, Ben, and, you know, my parents were mom and dad Bible, people of deep faith. We had to memorize scripture, and we, we cheated with Jesus wept, right? <laughs> Jesus is um, weeping at, at Lazarus' death, but also weeping when he comes into the city, kind of weeping over the city, disturbed in his gut, you know, uh, and weeping over the city. is a, such a, a kind of incarnate reference to God's own heartbreak and compassion, right, for us all. I love that we serve a, a God who feels deeply. I love the way the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. My food day and night. That caught your imagination, and you write about that. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I would actually love to to link that text to that Jesus and Lazarus text. Because one of the things that's really interesting to me about Jesus when he shows up to Lazarus's deathbed is is writing ahead of time. You know, Mary and Martha write to him, and they say, "You know, my Lord, the one that you love is sick." And Jesus very confidently writes back to them, "This sickness will not end in death." And then he travels, but it takes him days to get there. And by the time that he arrives, Lazarus has died. And I was talking about this story with a friend of mine, and he said something really interesting that I had never thought about before. And she said, you know, I wonder if Jesus wasn't sure that he could raise Lazarus, that Jesus has healed people again and again, but Jesus has never brought anybody back to the de- from, from death. And so perhaps Jesus arrives and part of the reason why he is weeping is because he was confident that he could heal Lazarus. But now that Lazarus is dead, that confidence has been shaken. And so what does he do in that that period of vulnerability where he doesn't know exactly what is going to happen? He cries. And, you know, linking back to the psalmist, I, I think we are fed in those moments when we are unsure, when we, you know, our voice is tremulous and we simply don't know where the road ahead is going to lead us. There is something in the act of weeping that reminds us that there is still love in the world, there is still tenderness, that we are, are held by the one who created us and connected to other people. That act of weeping in community inspires a reciprocal tenderness. And it's that reciprocity in the act of crying that feeds us, not just the tears themselves, but what those tears mean. They mean that that we are still alive. And oftentimes, particularly when we cry with other people, they mean that we are living in community. And that community is the source for resurrection. I love that. I'm thinking about the cultures we know where a crying baby is set in the midst of other babies and they all cry together. And it's like a kind of baptism into communal feeling, right? Yeah. So tears um, flowing through us is like a sacrament, we're saying, where 
there's an emptying and a, a flow through. I'm going to say remind us we're alive and also helps us process the pain, the grief of our life. There's a feeding, a nurturing sense of, I love how fancy you got the psychogenic lacrimation. lacrimation. <laughs> <laughs> the psychogenic lacrimation, right? To nourish our minds and bodies. too. But there's other things, right? I think the tears, tears mean in terms of our faith. Um, I love the way you talk about the Joseph story inspired by the Black Trans Prayer Book. The interpersonal tears that become political tears, right? Let's talk about that for just a little bit. How the personal and the political are linked through tears, both in your life then and in the Joseph story. So just to, to give a, a little recap, the, the briefest synopsis of uh, this queer reading of Joseph that, um, you know, as I say in the book, I, I was first introduced to by J. Mace III, who is the co-editor of the Black Trans Prayer Book. J. has this, this gorgeous reading of the Joseph story talking about you know, Joseph wanting, uh, you know, a ketanet pasim is the, is the Hebrew, which is oftentimes translated as a coat of many colors, a technicolor dream coat, how, however you want to say it in English. But actually, the only other place that it's that those words ketanet pasim are used in scripture refer to a princess dress. And if you re look at that story with the understanding that Joseph is actually asking his father for a dress. The subsequent events of their brothers beating them and stripping them and rubbing blood over the dress all of a sudden take on an entirely new character and one that I think is very familiar, unfortunately, to a lot of queer people, particularly for, for trans folks who are too often the victim of violence. And that's not the end of Joseph's story. Joseph then goes on to continue uh, interpreting dreams. Joseph does not let that violence stop their calling as a prophet. And it is actually that prophecy that predicts the years of famine that ultimately saves the lives of his father and his brothers. And so you have this gorgeous story of salvation being found in this queer kid who was a victim of violence, who nevertheless was determined to remain faithful to God, and that faith is rewarded. And the tears in the story come in a couple of really interesting places. Um, certainly there are some, probably some implicit tears that Joseph shed immediately after you know, he's beaten and and sold into slavery. But Joseph also cries immediately before they reveal themselves to their brother. The brothers come in and don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph sees this and goes into a, into a back room and weeps. And in that weeping makes the decision that they are going to re-enter relationship, that they're going to test their brothers to see if their brothers have really changed. And then they cry again after they realize that they, they have in fact uh, changed. They're, you know, they're not the same people that they were when they beat Joseph. Joseph cries again before they come out and they reveal themselves. And so you have this, 
this very, you know, personal story about somebody's trauma and the way that they are healing from it, the way they are choosing to and to re-enter relationship with the people who have harmed them. It's just a a stunning story. Also, and just in the way that it places the agency for healing on the person who's been harmed, that Joseph gets to choose every step of the way about whether or not they're going to be re-entering a relationship. Uh, I think there's just lots of things to learn from that. But sort of, you know, rewinding to your your first question about, you know, the personal being political, I think so often, you know, I'll, I'll speak as a, as a queer person, um, you know, my own personal weeping because of you know, legislative evil or acts of violence or other ways that people I love are being harmed and deliberately harmed by policies whose sole intention are cruelty. That weeping is a reminder in our bodies that this is not the way that God intends the world to be. And I think that is a really important thing, at least for me, is, is to remember that this is not preordained violence, that this is not something that is blessed by God, this is not something that uh, is the way that society is supposed to be structured, that it is a violation of God's intent for for our lives. Um, that doesn't you know, erase the violence, it doesn't make it better, but it does give me the hope that things can be different. Sure, that's really, really, really such an important insight, uh, Ben. Of course, it makes me think about all those places and times in history where there's a, a death, a wounding, a horrific crime. And even in the spaces and places where you know, paid town criers, literally, like, this is terrible. Let us cry out and proclaim how terrible this is uh, in this weeping, in this tearing of garments in this, you know, black tradition, you know, falling on the casket at a death and just really losing it, um, testifying this is just not uh, the way life should be. This is a, a an excruciating pain, and so those those tears, public and private, say bear witness to. You know, actually, not God's intention, not 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 on God's watch, right? Yeah. You and I spend time at Middle Church talking about race uh, and gender and sexuality and um, gun violence and things that break our hearts. I just wanted to, while we have just a few more minutes, to talk about where your heart is cracked wide open right now around white, you know, white supremacy and all the ways it, you know, traps us, wounds us, kills our souls, just... Do you want to just share a bit about what you are experiencing as you look at the world today through your tears? I think tears offer an interesting prism to talk about the violence of whiteness. Uh, you know, I, I have a chapter in my book about um, manipulative tears, deceptive tears, but there, there's a phrase I use in it a few times. Uh, of a predatory vulnerability. And I think that right now, what I see in really widespread ways um, from you know the actions of, of policy leaders like Ron DeSantis all the way down to 
you know, the individual faith of, you know, white evangelicals is this paradoxical framing of oneself as the victim, reflexively and always, in the same moment that you are using power to inflict devastating violence. And so you have, you know, folks who will talk about the persecution of white Christians like that is something that is actually happening in this country. And then using that imagined persecution to inflict very real persecution on vulnerable communities, you know, to, to say, oh, you know, there's a war on Christianity and therefore I'm going to kidnap trans kids from their parents. There is a war on Christianity and we need to marshal the forces of order to beat back the forces of darkness. And that's why we are going to deploy tear gas and rubber bullets against a community that is protesting because police killed someone they love. That refusal to acknowledge one's own power and past that, the, the pretending that one is in fact actually powerless and using that as a pretext and a justification to enact violence, that breaks my heart. And it's such a grotesque distortion of, of who we are called to be. We have the capacity for so much tenderness, so much beauty, so much love. Our tears can be a gift that reminds us how in, inextricably we're connected that reminds us that there is no flourishing outside of collective flourishing. They can be that that liturgical right, to, you know, that that draws us back towards one another. And instead, people are misusing this predatory vulnerability to deepen other people's grief. It is tragic, abomination. That's the word I like to think of right there. Yeah. So Ben. You know, there's a lot to weep about. And I just would love, as we wrap, for you to tell me where your hope is. Where are you finding hope? I'm, I'm looking outside my window right now, and there are a bunch of, of birds on our bird feeders. And I am reminded of the Emily Dickinson line that uh, that hope is the thing with feathers. <laughs> Quite literally, sometimes, like, just taking a breath and, and being reminded that I am part of a larger ecosystem than, than myself is, is some place that I personally find hope. But really, I mean, the, the place that I find hope is in, is in other people. I think that community for me again and again becomes that place where hope can be planted again. That if we come together in weeping, that those tears can water something new and different. So I think about a place like Middle, the way that, you know, we can come together and cry together and sing together and march together and do all of that with an understanding that, to quote a, a prayer, you know, all of us are prophets of a future, not our own. I think, you know, in some ways, remembering that it's not about me, you know, whether that's looking outside and seeing the birds on, you know, eating at my bird feeder and remembering that I'm, you know, part of a an ecosystem here that is, is much larger and deeper than humanity or the, the reminder that, you know, in a community, I am just another person and that's okay. That's not something bad. That's not something to be ashamed by. We don't have to be everything. We don't have to change everything, but we can do something and we can do it very well. 
that for me is a place of hope, that, that reminder that it's okay to cry, it's okay to feel desolation and despair, it's okay to throw yourself on the floor and, and truly mourn everything that we are moving through, because we should not be moving through it. But we don't stay there. If we stay there, you know, then I think we truly are lost. But that opportunity to really truly feel and grieve in full, I think, can open a doorway that we move through towards a different kind of relationship with one another. And that for me is like where the where the hope is, like what comes what comes after the, you know, that dark night of the soul. Beautiful then. Puts um, skin and flesh on the on the text weeping might last for a night. Joy comes morning. But joy comes in the morning. Yeah. Benjamin Ben Perry, author of Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. And minister at Middle Church and colleague and friend. I'm glad to speak with you today. Likewise, Jackie. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Love Period. As we reflect on my conversation with Ben, I want to ask you to consider, just as we are reclaiming Scripture, let's reclaim our tears as information about our bodies, as testimony to our feelings, and as an invitation to walk a little closer with the God we love.